I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Thanks again for joining us on Morning Gab. Coming up, we'll be talking to Lorraine Coors about what it's like living with a real-life Turkish gigolo. Hmm. That's right, Alan. But before we get to her, let's check in with Dave and the weather. Morning, Gabby. Looks like we're going to get some early showers and a cold front is blowing in from the southwest. Should clear up around noon. Back to you. So then Mr. Cavendish comes home early from work, and there I am by the pool wearing only a smile with a bottle of SPF 15 in one hand and Mrs. Cavendish's big old... Alan, you're on. You're on. Oh, uh, and we're back. Hey, <laughs> something felt well, funny there. Did not get the cue on that one. No, okay, heads up hey. in the booth would be great. No, and a little later we'll chat with Michael Jones, who spent time as Gaddafi's personal Pilates teacher. But Pam, how's that traffic looking? Morning, guys. I five is slow and go by the Clone Bridge. Ninety-two West has an accident on the left shoulder around Garland. So be on the lookout for that. Back to you guys. It's called a spirit walk for a reason, uh-huh. Alan. You just black out and go to this whole other world. Wow. I mean, I'm talking to this porcupine like it's completely normal. And you're out there for four days. Apparently. When I came to, I was covered in honey, and I was laying on a jukebox at a truck stop, and Lou looking... Alan, Cammy, you're back. Uh, oh. And we're back. Oh, hey, hi. seriously, well. Bruce, little warning. All right. Okay. A little later, you're going to hear from a Chaco war vet who will tell us what it's like to see the light fade from the eyes of a man you just killed. And a quick check back with Dave in the weekend weather. All right, you two, clear in 65 to 70 degrees both days. Back to you. Oh, my God. So what'd you do? What do you think I did? I wiped the place of fingerprints and got the hell out of there. Luckily, I'd stuffed the diamonds in there. Alan, Kevin, you're back. You're on the air. And we're back. Damn it, Bruce. You are killing us here. Okay, so uh, in a minute, we'll meet Lonnie Conger, who's gay and lives in San Francisco. Huh. But first... How are those roads looking, Pam? All clear till Highway 17, but that surprise storm is really going to mess things up for anybody. Heading north on 205, back to you. Oh, I thought we were back there for a second. Oh, I guess not. Okay. So what happened with Prince? Oh, well, I finally get him into the jacuzzi, mm-hmm. but the little guy can barely keep his head above the water. Did you know that Prince is only four foot ten? Now you're back! Oh, oh, yeah, all right, of course, now we're back. Yeah, and crying out loud, Bruce. You know, you know what, you know what, no more checking in with Dave and Pam, okay? And Bruce, you and I are going to have a little powwow at commercial, but now we're going to cut right to the main segment. It's boorish, it never interrupts, it's in your face, yet completely invisible, and it occasionally brushes your calf with its toe under the desk. Oh, hey, knock it off, Alan. It's, it's... From the beautiful Crydell Ballroom at the Portland Art Museum in Portland, Oregon, where we never cut away to traffic and weather, no matter how many angry letters we get, it's Livewire! And now the woman who rides a Segway on her spirit walks, Courtney Hameister! Thank you so much for joining us. Tonight is a very special night. We are coming to you from the gorgeous Portland Art Museum, and Livewire is celebrating our 7th anniversary and 150th sesquicensational episode. So we're happy to have you with us. And joining us for this special night, we're thrilled to have author and writing guru to many, Anne Lamott with us, with her latest novel, Imperfect Birds. And one of the best American independent directors is here tonight to talk about his latest project, the HBO miniseries Mildred Pierce. Todd Haynes is with us. 
And our musical guest is the lyrical and highly literate Sophie Lux. So that's going to be great. But first, please meet the amazing members of Faces for Radio Theater. Mr. Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath, the beautiful Trisha Ferguson, our siren of sound, Pat Janowski. And as usual, poet Scott Poole, author of Hiding from Salesmen, will take one single hour, the amount of time it took Ezra Pound to take enough ether to forget he was born in Idaho, to write a poem that encompasses all that we have learned tonight. So welcome, Scott, and get writing. We can't do any of it without our extraordinary band. Please welcome Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. Happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary. Sesquicensational. Uh, well, as I mentioned, we'll be talking to writer-director Todd Haynes later in the show about his recent HBO miniseries, Mildred Pierce. The miniseries is an adaptation of the James M. Kane novel of the same name about a mother of two who has to raise two girls on her own during the Great Depression. Haynes and co-writer John Raymond saw the story as particularly relevant these days as people need to be more and more resourceful to survive in a difficult economy, much like back then. We may not be living through another Great Depression, but at the very least, it's been a not-so-great recession for us. Um, And as I watched Mildred go through everything that she goes through, spoiler alert, boy, does she go through some stuff. Uh, I thought about the kind of depression that we're going through as a country now, and it's just that. It's depression, but the clinical kind. I don't know what sort of numbers you need to call something an epidemic, but when 75% of the people I know are on medication for a particular disease, that's clearly an epidemic in my circle, at the very least. Of course, I've considered that among my friends, having to be around me is the common denominator, (laughs) Uh, but I'd, I'd have to do a lot more than just complain about my romantic life and not return their Arrested Development DVDs to do that sort of psychic damage, I think. Um, Is it just that we have medications to treat depression now and we didn't then? Is Prozac the new martini? How can that be when the martini is still the new martini? (laughs) An article in Scientific American suggests that one of the problems is that doctors are confusing situational unhappiness, the kind that results from a death in the family, a breakup, or the cancellation of all my children, with (laughs) long-term clinical depression. Uh, What Dr. Ronald Dworkin claims we're doing is medicating unhappiness as opposed to depression. And the result can be really damaging, and I can see how. Seven years ago, I was miserable in my job as an advertising copywriter. I'd go to work each day, and as I wrote about the benefits of one managed partition server over the other, I could feel a little piece of my soul leaking out the open toe of the stylish suede wedges I bought with my hefty check, which was, incidentally, personally signed by Satan. Um, And if I would have gone to a doctor at the time, she would have probably prescribed an antidepressant. And I still would have disliked my job, but I wouldn't have actually felt that unhappiness fully, which I need to do for three to five years in any situation in order to gather the courage to get out of it. Don't judge. Um, And perhaps I would have stayed in that job instead of entering the highly lucrative world of radio variety shows. And the tough part is the longer I would have stayed in that job, the more I'd continue to need the medication to feel happy. So it would look a lot like long-term clinical depression, but would still just be, holy crap, this conference call is making me want to stab my eyes out with my Hello Kitty highlighter. In terms of actually treating clinical depression, I, think, I thank God that antidepressants exist today, and I think that they save lives. But I get Dr. Dworkin's point. It's really hard to differentiate clinical depression from unhappiness. Hell, it's hard to differentiate clinical depression from the life of a freelance writer working from home. Sometimes I feel like I'm just one scrunchie away, you know? <laughs> but I hope the doctors can figure it out, because marginal living through chemistry is a horrible tagline. And I know because I was in advertising. So uh, maybe we'll talk to Todd later and see what he would have thought of Mildred Pierce on Prozac. 
Moving on, the influences of our musical guests tonight range from classical music to punk to glam rock to pop. Spin Magazine compared their theatrics to a French opera and their sound to artists like the Dresden Dolls and Queen. With a sneak peek at songs from their new record, please welcome Sophie Lux to Livewire.
Sophie Lux. Welcome to the show. Do you, did you want to introduce the, the rest of the band? Yes. We have um, Erica Miller on bass and vocals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we have David Gold on theremin and electronica and many other instruments that mm-hmm. are inside of the electronica. David Gold. I have to say it's really cool to watch a theremin being played. You're, you're essentially, there's, there's, a bar, there's a wooden bar at the bottom, and you're essentially waving your hands over the bar there's, at different heights. Yeah, it's two antennas, and the right antenna controls pitch, and the left controls volume, and magic happens in between. Now, what we heard tonight, this, this is from a record that you guys are working on now, right? So how far along are you in the process of recording this record? We are um, working on getting all the songs together. We have these two, and we have two others um, from an EP that was a sort of a teaser EP. And so we're looking at about September until we'll have the other ones completed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and your, your sound is very different from, you know, when you were on the show before, I actually I requested a song because um, there's a song from the, the record that, that was your current record when you were on the show that I adore called Perfect Love. Um, and it's very poppy. You know, and extremely different from, from what you're playing now. So what do you think has happened with this evolution? Where do you think that you are now? And how'd you get here? Yes. Um, it feels to me like it's sort of a simplifi- simplification of the, of the elements of, you know, having a band. And so one of the wonderful attractive features of moving into electronica is to um, work with electronic beats instead of just constantly having a drummer and exploring sort of that universe. It's always something I was curious about. Erica and I actually were always very curious about that. And um, so moving from, I guess, that more um, rock format to this is really just sort of a personal interest and evolution and kind of felt like we did that band thing and now this is holding interest. Do you know what's also really awesome? Not schlepping drum kits. (laughs) Yes. Like, it's, it may Indeed. be one of the worst things about being in a band, wouldn't you say? <laughs> it is one of them. Yeah, Especially, yeah. like, flying and traveling. Yeah. With drum kits. <laughs> it's not good. Yeah. Well, that was beautiful, and you're going to come back and play one more song for us. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Sophie Lux, everybody. They'll be back later. Music Tonight brought to you by Dave's Killer Bread and the bread of the week, Good Seed Killer Light. The newest bread in Dave's arsenal boasts the following statistics. 100% whole grain, 75 calories, and 3 grams of fiber per organic slice. Would I joke about that? Not on your life or my own. Have you seen Dave's arms? They're huge. Dave's killer bread. Just say no to bread on drugs. Coming up, author Anne Lamott, director Todd Haynes, and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back. should do it. Denise? Denise, come out here. It's done. Uh-huh, John. Oh, what have you built in my garage? In our garage? I built a time machine in our garage, Denise. How does that strike you? A time machine? I beg your pardon. Oh, you can beg all you want, JK, hun. <laughs> uh, no, seriously, I've done it. Behold, 
my time machine. John, um, honey, I really don't know how to tell you this, but I don't know if attaching a bunch of wires and, I don't know, what looks like garbage to our lawnmower constitutes a time machine. You're just not looking at it with the right kind of eyes. You, you have to look at it with the eyes of an explorer. The eyes of mm-hmm. someone who can see the future and knows what to do when they get there. Oh, that's where you're going on your lawnmower? The future. Our lawnmower. Uh, Half of this is yours. And I'm not only going to the future, but also the past. Why? I will go to the past. I, I've been craving Kentucky Fried Chicken with the barbecue flavor. And I think I can only get it in like the mid-80s or something. So... I'm going there first. Okay, you built a fake time machine to go to the 1980s to eat fried chicken? With the barbecue flavor. All right, John, I am going to level with you now, okay? Shoot, babe, shoot. You've got to stop inventing things that don't work. Well, what are you talking about? Oh, how about that weird cage you constructed around the house to improve cell phone reception? The Faraday cage? It blocks out external static electrical fields. It's chicken wire, John. Except when it's a Faraday cage. Okay. The the bomb shelter in the backyard made of Duraflame logs. Okay. I shouldn't have installed the fireplace. (laughs) The invisibility cloak that got you arrested for public indecency? It was in... It was in beta testing. And now this? This is going to work. We will travel through time. We are not going to travel through time. This is a lawnmower with a garage sale glued to it. We'll just see about that. Better stand back. I'm going to power her up. Hand me the time control device module controller sequencer. Uh, you mean your old Walkman? Yes. Okay, here you go. Thank you. Now, just let me just enter the security code here. Beep, boop, 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 beep, beep, boop, uh, boop, you're making boop, those sounds with your mouth. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Uh, okay, you know what? Oh. No time, honey. This baby's purring. Stand back. <coughs> John! Oh, great. Now I'm covered in grass. Collect samples. That grass is from the past. Huh? I've been there. The terrible past. It works, Denise. Oh, God, it was awful. Here, hold this chicken. Chicken? It worked? But, but wait, how, how... You couldn't have been gone for more than a second. What was a second for you was days for me. W- what happened? I forgot that I was conceived in the 80s. I had to watch my own conception. My mother was wearing leg warmers. So? And nothing else. Who does that? What is warm about that? Mm. My God. Oh, that's too bad, hon. Mm. What? Oh, sorry, but you, you were right. This is good chicken. Uh, how can you talk about chicken right now? Oh, well, I didn't just see my parents doing it. Mm. Oh, did you get any coleslaw? No, I, I just got the family bucket. Oh, I am craving some coleslaw. Would you mind going back? Ugh, I just watched my mother inseminated. Oh, well, with then, me. Then I'll go. Do, do you want anything? I want to close my eyes and not see my father naked. Oh, man up. I'll get you a McDLT. And a new Coke? Yeah, whatever. See you in a second. Why leg warmers, mommy? Why? Many writers read our next guest's writing about writing before they read her writing about other things. Her book on writing Bird by Bird is looked at as the Bible for many. It's a funny, self-deprecating map through all the difficult twists and turns of a creative life. And she teaches by example, too. She's written eight novels, including Hard Laughter, Rosie, and Crooked Little Heart, and five best-selling works of nonfiction, including Traveling Mercies and Grace, eventually. Here with her most recent novel, Imperfect Birds, please welcome Anne Lamott to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Anne. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Um, so uh, I wanted to talk. I, I, I want to talk about imperfect birds, but I also just wanted to talk a little bit about um, your past leading up to this and some of your thoughts on writing. You've written books on faith, like Grace, eventually, and a lot of a lot has been written about the 
the connection between God and creativity. What's the relationship between creativity and God or creativity and faith for you? I don't have a clue. Um, the relationship between creativity and faith, huh, I actually, um, I, I, um, I'm not sure I've ever thought about that before. But um, the, the thing that comes to mind is that what faith gave me slowly, slowly, slowly over the years, I converted drunk at 31 and I got right. sober at 32. But what faith has given me is um, a belief that I was of value, whatever shape I was in, and that I was a, also my faith gave me the belief that I was a, narr- a narrator who could be trusted, which I didn't feel as a child, because when I would narrate what I thought was happening, my parents would say, oh, for God's sake, that's ridiculous. Go to your room, you'll never eat again. And... <laughs> When I had faith and I began to feel that I was loved and chosen and cherished, I began as a um, militant act to trust myself and to trust that my perceptions were valid and that, that what I thought was, um, was sort of funny and interesting and really quirky. And so that relationship to, to faith gave me the most precious thing of all back, which was my own self. And, and then I could write harder and harder. I could bite off harder and harder pieces of music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's what... It's like doing anything, like playing piano. You really don't start off wanting to, um, to botch the Beatles, you know, but you have to be able to botch the Beatles before you can play Mozart. It's just the same with writing. And as my faith has deepened, it's kept me at my desk because I have faith in me now. Well, I think that, that faith is also about forgiveness a lot. And you write a lot about just sort of forgiving your writing for its imperfection, forgiving yourself for your imperfections and not really listening to those voices. Mm-hmm. So it feels like that might have a, have a part in it too. Well, that's a good, that's, that's um, well said. I, um, oh, you know, I, forgiveness is not my strong suit. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's supposed to be sort of rule one as a Christian. And I have to say that some days go better than others. Mm-hmm. Um, with a close friend, I would speak one way with his or her work if I were helping them with it. And with myself, left to my own devices, and certainly in the old days, I was very harsh. You know, the kids now say, oh, you're harshing me. And I, I'd be harshing myself because I have this disease of perfectionism. And little by little, I began to understand that that anything I wrote that might be useful to anyone ever was going to spring from mess and failure and false starts and long drafts that meandered. And, and, um, and I began to um, forgive the process, I think, more than I forget, began to forgive anything else. I, I just sort of gave up resisting it, thinking that other writers had little tricks and shortcuts and that it was much, much cuter and more festive when they did it and just hard when I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not true. No, it's the same. everyone's in the same boat. That's the good news and the ba- bad news for all the writers that are listening is that it's not going well for anyone. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. This most recent book is a novel, but I, you've written multiple beautiful memoirs. And uh, I'm not sure if you read this Neil Genslinger piece in the New York Times in January. It was all about the glut of memoir. With, it had quotes like, that you had parents in a childhood does not itself qualify you to write a memoir. There seems to be a lot of talk these days where people are focusing on bad memoir. When they're, when they're reviewing good memoir, they have to talk about all the bad memoir out there. Why do you think that people seem to be kind of attacking memoir right now? Um, I think a lot of people that write interesting pieces for the New York Times are just really bitter and enraged and jealous of the people that wrote memoirs and stuck it out for the three years that it took to do it badly and then get it published. And I think that they're really cranky. But um, the thing about a memoir is that if, if someone, especially for me, a woman, is very smart and very funny, then I want to hear her memoir. And if she's not, I don't. It's really it's um and if and um if a man is really sweet and funny and has a, a rich soul and is really smart, I do want to hear what he has to say because there's not really very much truth out there in the popular culture. And if someone's willing to 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 share some of their truth with me, oh, I'm really hungry for it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's about just telling the story as well, regardless of what the story is. 
Um, so I wanted to talk about Imperfect Birds. This is the third in the Rosie series. Yes. So we're following this girl. Now Rosie is uh, a teenager. She's in high school. It's not a series so much as a trilogy. I think series sounds a tiny, tiny bit like those the nice vampire Right, that have done so much better than I have, but at the same time, it's it's an intentional trilogy. I was concerned that, uh, with the lack of vampires in this. There are, um, yeah. but <laughs> there's only a few, right? But now uh, Rosie's really struggling in this, and the, the this book is about what drug abuse and lies can kind of do to a family. Mm-hmm. Why did you feel like that was important to write about now, and and for this to happen in Rosie's life at this point? Well, I just um, saw that she was 17, and she's brilliant, and she's funny, and she's always been troubled. I mean, her dad died when she was four years old, and Elizabeth, her mother's marvelous, but she drinks too much. And if you're, you know, a friend of mine, Pat Fitzgerald, said, if you're over the age of 12, and you're an American girl, and you're not furious, then you've completely missed the boat, you know? <laughs> and so the second in the trilogy is Rosie at 13 and 14, and her, I think her rage at the fact that she is judged so... Um, badly because she doesn't fit into the popular um, vision of beauty, which is more, you know, Scarlett Johansson, and she's got these thick, black, long curls, and she's really, really skinny and scrappy, but she's brilliant, and she's lovely, and so full of spirit and, and concern, and yet that doesn't count. That doesn't get you really very far. So when the girls turn 17, boy, have they learned how to get farther with the boys, and it has to do with, you know, taking care of the boys, whereas the boys don't take care of them and it's pretty appalling and it really does make you feel like the women's movement never happened that's a good point well it's it's a beautiful book and um the 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 book is called imperfect birds um I, i wanted to ask about sam your son sam who you wrote operating instructions about his first year um has a son has a child now my son has a child, an almost two-year-old boy, yeah. So you're a grandmother. I'm a grandma. What's that experience been like for you? Oh, you know, all the grandmothers, the grandmothers are the happiest people on earth. It's the bonus round. You know, somehow your children survived you and themselves and their own best thinking and your best thinking, and they've had a child, and the child is everything beautiful and and exhilarating and lovely and tender-hearted about life, and then the child leaves and goes home which is not your house, and it's so nice. And then you pick up everything, and then you stretch out on the couch with the New Yorker. <laughs> well, I'm glad he's doing well, and you're doing well. Thank you so much you're for joining so us welcome. after Thanks your for long having day. Anne Lamont, you. the book is Imperfect Birds. You're listening to Livewire, brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, who remind you that April is Earth Month, but that doesn't mean you should just buy the Earth chocolates and flowers and then forget about it for the rest of the year. Do something green every day, like using reusable shopping bags every time you shop. More information can be found at WholeFoodsMarket.com. Wow, you're Todd Haynes. Wow. I am. Um, Mr. Haynes, welcome to Transcontinental Pictures. Uh, Glenn and I are so glad you were willing to meet with us today. We are huge fans of your work. Huge. huge. <laughs> Velvet Coalmine is one of my favorite movies mm. of all time. Mm. Oh, well, thanks. I don't think that there's been enough work focusing on the plight of velvet miners in this country. Mm-mm. Brave, brave work, sir. Right. Well, thanks, I guess. Uh, please call me Todd. Okay, Todd. Uh, can we get you anything? Coffee? Tea? Oxycontin? <laughs> Just kidding, but seriously, if you want some, I, I know a guy, so... No? Yes? Uh, no, no, I'm fine. Okay. Thanks. You are <laughs> fine. Please, sit down. Any hoozle down to biz. Transcontinental Pictures wants to work with you. Lots. Big lots. And we have some projects for you rolling around in our brains. Can you hear them rolling around? They're up there. <laughs> I can't. Well, that's because we haven't opened them out of their idea pods yet. Okay, now they're open. Tracy, you go first. Okay. Loved Kate Blanchett in I Am Not There, mm-hmm. and so did every critic in the known universe. <laughs> the Mars Gazette loved it. Metaphorical thrill ride with Richard Gere. Beep, boop, bop, beep. <laughs> Well, that makes me a little uncomfortable. <laughs> me also. Okay, we were thinking sequel, mm-hmm. but the negativity in the title. Mm-mm. Ugh. 
I don't understand. I am not there. How about this? Here I am. Or, I'm right here, silly. <laughs> hmm. And she'd be playing Dylan again, or... Who's Dylan? No, she is playing a rich girl whose father wishes she had never been born, so she magically gets turned into a poor person who has to work as a maid to learn her lesson. Mm-hmm. I think that's um, Made to Order with Ali Sheedy. Oh! <laughs> Good catch, Mr. Movie Encyclopedia Britannica 3rd Edition. <laughs> we are rebooting that franchise. Reboot! Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think it was a franchise, probably for good reason. Um, do you guys have any other ideas? Okay, or? loved Far From Heaven. But again, with the negativity, what's Far From Heaven? Hell. And what happens in hell? People burn for all eternity in hot molten pits of pain and fire. And what is fun about that? Nothing. Right, lakes of fire hurt. What say we do a Far From Heaven type film, but here's a twist. The husband is straight, and they're in love. And they sing on roller skate, and it's called Heaven! Uh, that's Xanadu. I'm not following. Singing on roller skates. You know, that's Xanadu with Olivia Newton-John. Okay, skateboards? No. Luge? Wow. Um, look, I don't mean to seem harsh, but have you guys got any original ideas? Sugar balls. What? Uh, it's a giant ball of sugar that you drop into your latte, then dry off, then put back in the bottom of your purse until the next time. <laughs> Ew. I'm not good at things. Right. Well, look, I gotta go, but uh, these ideas to inject positivity have been, you know, inspiring. Um, maybe a Springsteen biopic with members of the Osmond family playing different phases of his life. <gasps> Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, Mildred Pierce with Kathy Lee Gifford. Inspiring. Uh, shot-for-shot remake of Herbie Fully Loaded with Julianne Moore. It's like you got a direct line to my psyche. You got a direct line, Todd. Yeah, excellent. Um, well, I'm never going to call you guys next week. Okay, see ya. All right, sounds <laughs> okay, good. sounds good. <sighs> you know, we are positive in love with that guy. <laughs> what a nice man. Moving on, what do you think about Oliver Stone directing a remake of Mannequin? Well, let's get Meshach Taylor on the horn. Well, you've already sort of met him, but our next guest is one of the most well-respected independent directors out there. He's directed groundbreaking film after groundbreaking film, starting with his experimental documentary slash biopic, The Karen Carpenter Story, starring some Barbie dolls, and moving on to films like Safe, Velvet Goldmine, and Far From Heaven. Most recently, he co-wrote and directed the lush and meticulously realized HBO miniseries Mildred Pierce, starring Oscar winners Kate Winslet and Melissa Leo. Please welcome Todd Haynes to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Todd. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining us you. and being such a good sport. <laughs> I sporty. blew the last line. I completely screwed it up. <laughs> yeah, he just he had a last line, and he, and we're never casting I, him again I, in anything. I lost my chance. Never. Um, <laughs> so uh, my understanding is that writer John Raymond approached you with this James M. Cain novel, Mildred Pierce, um, and it's interesting. We had him on recently yeah. <laughs> for the Kelly Reichardt film. On, and, and he had approached her with this Meek's Cutoff story. Yeah. So what is it about John Raymond Damn. that allows him to just sort of make directors make <laughs> movies about stories that he finds interesting? Very persuasive young man, Mr. Raymond. Mm-hmm. Uh, John is an amazing guy. He's an amazing writer. Yeah. Yes. He also wrote Livability. Yeah. Short stories. Beautiful collection of short stories, award winning. You guys collaborated on the writing of this. You co-wrote this. Have you ever co-written anything with I anyone worked, before? I worked with um, Oren Moverman on the completion of on, on my script uh, for the Dylan film. I'm not there. Um, and in many ways, I feel like all my work are you know interpretations of existing work by existing artists that I am there to kind of sort through and find some new meaning in or some new context for. And so I always feel like I'm collaborating at some level or another, even if it's not literally with another co-writer. Yeah. Um, this I've never. This this experience was different because not only were we working on a multi-part, longer, 
huge canvas, you know, of a five-hour miniseries, but I've never really adapted any single work as closely and as sort of faithfully as we attempted to do with the, with the novel. Now, was that, was that John who wanted to do it as, as faithfully? Or? No, I don't think John ever really thought of adapting it. He just said, you've got to read Mildred Pierce. You know, and I'd known the film version, the 1945, beautiful, you know, Joan Crawford. Won an, uh, won an Academy Award She won for an that Academy film. Award. Her one Academy Award that she won. It was a gorgeous piece of Hollywood filmmaking. Um, but to me, it was something I would never have wanted to remake based on that. You know, it's, it's a, it is what it is. They imposed a kind of noir criminal f- framing device on the story, which is not a part of the novel. But I didn't know that until I read it. And the novel I was reading in 08, in the summer of 08, as the financial markets were starting to teeter, and found this piece to be so uh, prescient, so relatable to what was going on around us. It spans a decade in the Depression. The film version, I think, squeezes it down to like a five-year span. And, uh, yeah, I I was the one who just thought, wow, this could really support a longer scale dramatic interpretation. So that's what we set out to do. Well, it was, uh, as, as I watched it, she really turns her daughter, well, her daughter turns into a monster. It reminded me, um, this author, Barbara Almond, wrote a book this past year called The Monster Within. And it oh, was about, I read about that. Yeah, yeah, it was about women being terrified that they're going to give birth to a monster. Hmm. And what struck me about watching this film was that it didn't feel like she had done anything to create this person who was really evil. Her yeah. daughter was unquestionably yeah. evil. Yeah, you know? ultimately. Yeah. yeah, you may not yeah. know it for several hours of mm-hmm. the episode, but you yeah. see intimations. For what sure. are your thoughts on their relationship? I mean, how do you characterize what happened? Well, I feel like you know, we. I was really interested in trying to present Vita as dimensionally as possible and watch, especially with the first three hours of the miniseries. It's played by a, a child. Morgan Turner plays Vita from age eleven to thirteen. And you see somebody really trying to assume this place that the mother has put her on this pedestal, this sort of cultural inheritance of all middle-class aspirations, you know, wanting to make your child the best they can be and have them have a better life than you you could have. And you see, you know, that, that sort of power that the child assumes as a result. Mostly, I think it comes down to the biggest problem is that Mildred invests in Vita the way one really, sh- in, in, with emotions that really should be directed toward a love object, toward a man in her case, you know? And the kind of, it's like an unrequited love story between mother and daughter. And so the daughter conducts too much power, too much, you know, dominance in this, in this relationship. And that is only, you know, exacerbated as, as the relationship with Monty, this sort of playboy character, this polo player from Pasadena. Played who, by Guy Pierce, by who Guy is in Pierce. excellent physical shape, it I might add. Is. Oh my gosh. Yow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thank you for making him take his shirt off <laughs> so welcome. often. Thank you, HBO. <laughs> Uh, it was, it was very, written very into the clause, in this film. Um, the contract. Yeah. No, um, no, he did such a fantastic job with a with a difficult role. I mean, there's a lot of cliches that could be played, and he makes it so utterly. He real. did a beautiful job. He really did. Um, I actually read that Kate Winslet said this is this was the hardest thing that she's worked on since Titanic, just because it was two and a half films in 16 mm-hmm. weeks. Mm-hmm. As a director, what do you learn directing two and a half films in a short period of time that you that you wouldn't have learned otherwise? Um, <laughs> that, uh, well, you better have the really, really excellent people around you. I mean, I really, truly, you know, I, 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 made, I made sure I just had the very best people working with me on this all across the board, and that really got us all through it. And pick a leading lady like Kate Winslet, who just conducted this sort of energy and the spirit on set every single day. There's a point where she has to like be completely drenched in the rain in this evening gown. It's at the end of episode three and she's coming home after this ordeal. And we were shooting at four in the morning in the middle of the suburbs of Queens. And she had to like get out of her car and be doused in water before the shot. And she just screamed at the top of her lungs, this is what we get to do for a living. How lucky are we? I mean, it's fantastic that she remembers that this is really special and really extraordinary, and we're all incredibly lucky to have this as a job, you know? And it, it reminds the, the hard-working crew that, that, that trudges through of these, these days with us um, that, that, that we, we are not taking it for granted, you know? It was yeah. great. 
Yeah. Well, I wanted to to just talk briefly. You had rec- you recently had a painting put up in Portland City Hall. I had a portrait that was done of me by uh, Stephen Cohn. Stephen Cohn, yes. Um, and the money from from the auction of that painting is going to go to the Right Brain Initiative. Yeah, exactly. Which gets arts into public schools. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. And just, just very, very briefly, what did arts in public schools do for you? Oh, God. I mean, it's impossible for me to think about my upbringing without uh, the presumption of, of, of art and music being taught in the public school system, which I went to through most of my years in school in Los Angeles, where I was raised, to think that that's been extracted from the sort of basics of what education is in this country is just, is just something that we really do need to step in and intervene on and, and make it a priority. It's value and the way artist grants and so many aspects that our government used to value and favor as, as, as fundamental to what our society stands for and who we are as a people, the way we've been able to sort of negotiate away those, those um, priorities and values is, is definitely an issue. And it continues as these fights over PBS and, and Planned Parenthood continue. Now yeah. it doesn't really stop, and we have to put our foot down. So yeah. any small way that people can help. What's cool about this program is that it brings local artists in conversation with the the people who make curriculum in public schools, and they decide together ways to bring the arts to, 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 to students. So it's a great program to have any part of whatsoever. Well, it's great that you're donating the money. Um, thank you so much for thank joining you. us. It's been such a pleasure. Absolutely. And playing with us as well. Thank you. Todd Haynes. Thanks. Mildred Pierce is, I think, still playing on HBO. You can find it in the next yeah. couple months. Yeah. Todd Haynes, everybody. Thank you. And now it's time for the... Audience Haiku! In honor of our seventh anniversary, we have asked our audience to expound on a single subject on the form of haiku, the seven-year itch. Faces for Radio Theater have chosen their favorites, and we'll now read them with the help of Ralph Huntley. Tonight's haiku is, as always, brought to you by the New Belgium Brewing Company, this month featuring the Mighty Arrow Pale Ale. The new Mighty Arrow Pale Ale, named for the brewery's beloved dog, Arrow. It'll make you want to sit, speak, and rub that belly. And if you do it right, hair of the dog needn't be an issue. And now, audience haiku. Ralph, I have one. Uh, Can I get some musical accompaniment? Um, Something evocative of a uh, risk taker, a gambler, somebody rolling the dice. Being single sucks. Always hope to find a catch and not catch an itch. Thanks, Paige. Hey, uh, Ralph, can I get something kind of down on your luck, sort of dopey? Our first date was hot. We got it on all the time. Now we don't have sex. Thank you, Holly D. And now, ladies and gentlemen, from the audience to read his very own haiku, please welcome one of you, Chris Dawson. Wow, what an honor to be on stage tonight. Ralph, uh, I'd like something that you might hear when you're visiting a blog about poodles or other domesticated creatures. Could you be less specific? (laughs) Uh, Any domesticated creatures would be fine. Nikki, let's make our seven-year itch from the bites from our fat cat's fleas. And I just proposed on Tuesday, so this is actually a declaration as much as a haiku. So thanks. All right, great job, audience, on the audience haiku. You're listening to the 150th episode of Livewire Radio. (laughs) 
You can find over a hundred of our previous episodes in podcast form on our website at livewireradio.org or on iTunes. And if you want the next 150 episodes to download to your computer automatically, trademark, simply subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Visit our website at livewireradio.org. Welcome, Sophie Lux.
And now, as promised, he's been toiling away while we play. Please welcome to the stage poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I learned tonight that I should fess up and tell you I've actually been to the future for a while. The problem is that when I came back, I was exactly the same person I was before. Well, I was Michael J. Fox for about 10 minutes, but that happens to everybody. But then I was myself again, and no one believed me. And I can't really recommend the future. I spent most of the time with guys in tinfoil who chirp instead of talk. In the future, everyone looks like a thing of Jiffy Pop. They even have that giant wire handle sticking off the top of their heads. And if they go out into the sun too long, they start to crackle and puff out hideously. They are lost in their own worlds of faith, and I had my world of faith, and there was absolutely nothing in common with us. For instance, do you know that in the future the soundtrack is Sophie Lux, and they wear sunglasses, and they pour SPF 35,000 on their sunglasses with spritz bottles, and they have spritz bottles of SP 35,000 parties? None of the future made, I mean, makes any damn sense. I didn't meet anyone important who could help me. No inventors, no world leaders, just Jiffy Pop guys. The future is like trying to retell the plot lines of all the conversations at your daughter's junior high birthday party. I had to tell someone, so I pretended it was fiction. I tried to pitch the future to Todd Haynes because I figured I wouldn't have to make anything up. And when the movie came true, they would call me a visionary. Jiffy Pop people, how did he know? It seemed so ridiculous, but now it's studied by graduate students. Damn you, the future. You're not doing me a hell of a lot of good. Of course, there was a bunch of embarrassing errors I was just about to make I was going to tell you about, like how I'm going to slip in the bathtub tonight and crack all my front teeth out, but then I'll become a world-renowned whistling champion. But that's not going to happen now. So what's up with you? Thanks. Scott Poole. That's our show for tonight. Thanks so much for listening. Our thanks to our guests tonight, author Anne Lamont, director Todd Haynes, and Sophie Lux. The Button Shops are Ralph Huntley, Jim Brumberg, and Dave Jorgensen, and Steve Berlin. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, and Dave's Killer Bread. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, the Oregon Cultural Trust, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners such as you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Thank you to Rose City Sound. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. Our senior producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brumberg. The Faces for Radio Theater are writers Courtney Hommeister, Sean McGrath, and house poet Scott Poole. And performers Tyler Hughes, Trisha Ferguson, and Siren of Sound, Pat Janowski. Our guest writer this week is Jason Rouse. Our recording engineer is Jonathan Newsom. House sound by Jeffrey Hilton Simmons. Production management by Drew Flint. Stage management by Matt King. Thanks to Rob Bearden and the entire staff at the Portland Art Museum. Special thanks to Emily Crumpacker. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at livewireradio.org. This is your announcer, Tyler Hughes, saying, Bosoms, because I can. Nobody listens this far into the credits.
Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.